This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Help Wanted on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Help Wanted on Business Radio, where we talk about difficult work situations and how to deal with them. We are so happy to have you with us. I'm your host, Jody Foster, and I'm the Assistant Dean of Professionalism and a Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the Perelman School of Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania, Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Pennsylvania Hospital. And I'm here with my co-host, Sean Burke. Hi, Sean Burke, Associate General Counsel and Employment Attorney at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Foster, always a pleasure to see you. <laughs> On today's show, we are going to open the floor to your calls all hour, and our mailbag is brimming at the seams, so we're going to go through some cases. We'll review topics we've discussed on some previous shows, but we're here all hour long to take any questions and comments you have about difficult situations at work, mean bosses, micromanagers, flooded toilets in the office, poor boundaries, people taking credit for your work, whatever it is, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Sean, let's start by kind of doing a little bit of a summary of, of uh, we've been doing this for a few months now. Right. We've had a bunch of guests and a you know bunch of topics and books that we've been discussing. And right. uh, what are your thoughts on where we're at? Yeah, it's a great idea. It's a great time to take stock and think about the things that we've learned from a number of the authors that we've had join us here in the studio or on the phones. Um, and I've got some themes that have come out from a number of the books that we've read and the discussions that we've had. And, and a lot of them, I think, are intuitive. And maybe it's the most important thing simply to be thinking about these things before you have conversations, even if they don't seem to be very concrete I or think offer that's specific exactly right. steps. I think that, that anything we do to take a step back and think before we have our right. interactions is probably going right. to load the odds that they're better. Right. Definitely. As long as you're not stopping to consider bad advice, if you're stopping to consider any advice... You can think of it almost in the medical context. You're probably familiar with this. And it's also um, sometimes done, I think, in the engineering context, too, as the concept of the pause for safety. Right. Before you begin this this surgery, you have a timeout and take a pause for a moment to make sure we're about to proceed the right way. So that's not a bad thing to do in your conversations. And we can go through some of these things that you might reflect on during your pause for safety before you begin a um, difficult conversation. So the number one thing that I thought came out from... Just about all of our guests, and I don't think anybody would deny this, is that when you approach a difficult situation, maybe even more important than having your speech prepared is to be ready to be a good listener. Yes. And what is it uh, that makes a good listener? Well, I I would say step number one is shutting your mouth. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, think about how many interviews... Where uh, I mean, I can think of so many interviews that I've had where I sit down for what whatever half hour, hour, and I don't open my mouth, and, right. and I'm in the room with some sort of you know uh, bloated individual who who just is telling me all about him or herself the entire hour, and you know, and I'm smiling and nodding my head, and then at the end, I mean, I've gotten some of my best reviews. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, so, because sometimes, you know, we love it. We love to hear ourselves talk, but if we would right. just if we would just close our mouths and listen and listen to what people are saying, people people want to tell you about themselves. Right. You you could almost break this into two different parts, perhaps. You could say be a good listener is an important piece of advice, but also just be quiet. Even if you spend part of the time being quiet daydreaming, I don't know that that's going to be terribly effective, but sometimes it's better than running at the mouth. Wait, right. Even if you're in a meeting, meeting. daydreaming, you know, you're giving somebody else the opportunity to to have voice. I'll tell you, uh, um, one of the most important lessons and one of the hardest things to learn in a psychiatry residency is how to, you know, tolerate silence and how to listen. Listening is a skill and it's something that we don't necessarily do enough. So, yes, I agree with you that I think every one of our guests definitely uh, uh, all supported the idea of of listening when you're in a conversation and certainly in a conflict with somebody to hear other perspectives. Right. Well, let me just actually emphasize one of the points you said, and not just to show you and everybody listening that I'm a good listener, (laughs) but toleration of silence is such a useful skill to have and so hard to develop. But I, I think 
of a number of things. One is the biographer Robert Caro, well known for biographies of Lyndon Johnson and Robert Moses and some others. He recently published a memoir. I can't claim to have read it yet, but I know that in interviews where he was discussing his work practices, he said he writes notes to himself in his notes to stay silent because he knows that so much of the real gems that he finds during his interviews with subjects come when he keeps his mouth shut and lets someone continue. And in my experience, I've also found it to be extremely effective in a negotiation when there is an awkward moment in that discussion just to remain silent. And you're doing a couple things, I think. You're you're allowing the other person to continue to talk, and you may learn some useful information Mm -hmm. about how to continue that discussion. But you're also, and I hope this doesn't sound manipulative, but you're also projecting a degree of confidence when you remain silent that you might not project if you continue to babble on. That's absolutely true. I think the reason that one of the reasons that we have trouble uh, staying silent is because we need to fill the open space because it makes us uncomfortable. That's exactly right. Listeners, how do you feel about this? 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So what else have we learned? Well, even before we move on to the next one, let's think for just a moment longer about being a good listener. So what if you're actually listening, you're not just trying to create silence, but you're actually trying to absorb what content is being Mm-hmm. Sent to you. What are the what are the concrete steps that you can do to be a good listener? I know. I mean, these are just personal tips, but I know in my own case, I sometimes need to take notes because if I'm just listening, things might bounce out of my ears, metaphorically speaking. But if I'm writing things down, it has to go to get from my ear to my hand. It's got to go through my brain. And even if I'm never going to read those notes, it might be helpful just to take those notes. What other techniques and tips yeah, so, have you used? Uh, so I'm not a note taker. Uh-huh. In fact, I find that um, taking notes is distracting. And I think for me, making good eye contact and really being present with somebody as you're listening to them okay. is, uh, for me, the, the really best way to take in what it is they're saying. I mean, right. if I pay attention to um, not being distracted and actually being as present as I can possibly be and connecting with the person I'm talking to, I have a much better chance of absorbing what they say and, and taking in, you know, I might have you know, what we term free floating attention as I'm listening, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, I think that in being uh, uh, present with them and, and, you know, holding eye contact, I'm going to be able to take in the major points that people are trying to and I think that's, my way. Yeah. And I think that's also probably going to instill more of a degree of confidence that that you're that in in the person who's speaking that they're being heard. Yeah. Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. Okay. So be a good listener. This is the tip that I think all of our all of I, our guests I also said. think one you know one yeah. last thing on that. I yeah. think that when you're really present with somebody when you're listening to them, it doesn't need to be a lot of time. Right. I mean, I can tell you that that you can have 5 minutes of a very meaningful connected right. Right. interaction that is worth 30 minutes of of distracted interaction. Right. And so I really right. think that it's not uh, we're not equating a lot of time with being a good listener. It's quality, it's, not quantity. Exactly. Yeah. And so we probably should say before we move on to the next point, the obvious one, put down your phone. Keep it in your pocket. Don't oh, be looking yeah. at your phone. That's yeah. that's that's going to drive and people. And don't be listening to the ta- to the conversation at the next table while you're. That's right. Your, yeah, definitely. Right. Okay, um, so I've got some other notes from a distillation of our conversations with our guests. Here's an here's one that I think is important. Invite feedback. Right. Um, ask the person. Ask your interlocutor for their um, feedback on what you're saying, how you've been doing. How do you do that in in a way that's most likely to get honest responses? Yeah. I mean, soliciting feedback and being poised to accept feedback are two very different things, right? Yes. And um, so... And the latter is more important. Oh, yeah. I mean, so you have a lot of people who say, I want feedback, I want feedback, I want feedback. What what they're really saying is, I need you to compliment me one more time because... I need I need to fuel. This is so true. I think there are so many times when people say, can you tell me what you think about this? And I really want to know the truth. Right. What they want you to say is something positive, and they want to believe that, is the, that it is the truth because they've told you in advance they want the truth. Correct. But what, the, but what they're 
really pushing for is. Or they or they're asking for feedback, but in fact they're asking for uh, there's a particular outcome that they're seeking, and they're not necessarily going to hear right. anything that you have to say except the thing right. or some nuance of the thing that they are seeking. So, uh, you know, again, in the world of, of being a good listener, you also need to listen to yourself. And when you hear yourself responding to feedback and you're responding with um, you know, resistance and um, uh, intellectualizations and rationalizations about, you know, why this person is wrong about the feedback that they're giving you. You need to be able to accept criticism and to accept feedback openly because that will invite people to do it again. Right. And the more feedback right. you genuinely invite. It's an investment strategy. Yeah. And then and that's when the dyads occur. That's when the interplay occurs. That when you actually get information from people about How's it going? How's it, you know, how are you doing? That's how conversations get started. So you got to mean it. And that's a skill too. So we say, listen, that's a skill. We say, invite feedback. That's a skill. If you're inviting feedback just to use the words, then you're kind of, that's that's not helping anybody. If you're doing it in a perfunctory way, you're maybe even going to make things worse. Right. So these are related. And I think a third is related to the two that have come already. And the third is ask for help. And, uh, you know, we had um, an entire session with Dr. Wayne Bryant of University of Michigan where he said, you know, you need to be able to ask for help. Don't be concerned that asking for help is going to make you look incompetent. On the contrary, people who ask for help are not only more competent because they get assistance and get more information, but they also, in the long run, appear more competent for being more constructive team partners. Right. And as managers, to be able to create an environment where asking for help is encouraged and supported right. and people are not, in fact, made to feel bad or otherwise inadequate for asking for help is the perfect and best way to get that kind of conversation going. Right. Again, listeners, we are at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Call us with your thoughts on all of this as well as any questions that you have about your own workplace situation. So a um, couple more here before we get to our cases, because I know we've got quite a few of them that have built up over the last couple of weeks. Um, one of our guests um, really focused on the important role of individual dignity. Mm-hmm. And this stuck out for me because I'm continually reminded both in, in, our, in my practice and in conversations with you here on the air that so much of what we talk about has to do with the fact that we're dealing with human beings mm-hmm. rather than robots. We don't, in the interactions that at least we're responsible for managing and advising on, we're not talking about two computers setting up an interface and exchanging data. We're talking right. about two human beings with emotions and backgrounds and histories and personalities and preferences. And when you recognize that you're dealing with human beings, it's important to understand that each individual has a sense of dignity, a sense of self-worth. It may be robust. It may be vulnerable. It may be at its peak. It may be at its trough. But those kinds of things to think about are important. At the end of the day, you, you know, you can get so much more out of yourself and out of your employees if you feel valued for the work that you're doing. That's right. And, I, you know, I, I think dignity is one way to phrase it, um, uh, you know, a sense of of value is another way to phrase it. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, I would say feeling value trumps money, feeling value trumps so many other kinds of qualitative things that happen at yeah. work. If you feel good and you feel that the work you're doing is appreciated, you are much, much more likely to be satisfied That's where right. you are. Right. I mean, in one respect, money is a subset of feeling valued, right? Right. Whether you think you're well compensated is really a subset of the larger uh, metric, which is do you feel as if you're appropriately valued in your workplace? Do, right. You know, are you, are you uh, respected for what you do? Um, are you respected as an individual? And is your output respected? Okay, uh, next item on my list, provide constructive feedback. And I'll add to that also, um, don't be an obnoxious bully or ruinously empathetic. <laughs> there, you know, so many of the different. Uh, I think we can talk about them as a generality rather than the specifics here for the purpose of this conversation. But so many of the different writers that we uh, met with uh, built their suggestions on an assessment of different personality styles. And candidly, I'm not perfectly convinced that a lot of these personality styles would be demonstrated in 
real robust psychological testing, but they seem to conform to our own anecdotal experience. And their advice is that there are ways of approaching people that are um, that that are sort of superficially appealing, but are wrong. You know, pushing people around or avoiding discussions or actually being empathetic, but not really addressing a mm-hmm. core issue. Um, these are all ways of avoiding providing constructive feedback, and they're negative. They're not helpful. Right, right. And I think that um, taken together, I think the general consensus is that uh, being direct, being clear, being concise, and being right. genuine and meaningful in what it is that you have to say, um, right. these, are, these are things that really matter. Right. And this is, of course, something that integrates very well with a theme that you and I have talked about and which you have emphasized in a lot of your interactions and advice scenario, which is that providing direct feedback is one of the most important steps to take Direct, when you're trying concise, to correct. early intervention feedback. There's no substitute for There's it. There's no substitute for it. In case you're just tuning in, this is Help Wanted on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jody Foster, along with my co-host, Sean Burke. And today we're talking about difficult situations at work. If you have a question for us, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our phone lines are open. And if you have a case that you'd prefer to email in, you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and we'll cover your case on the next show. So so in the spirit of direct feedback, let's yeah. go to our cases that we've gotten from listeners. Okay. You're done with our – are we done with our summaries yeah, of – I think that's – this is something we certainly can continue to return to over time, but given that we've – Landed on direct feedback. Let's give some direct <laughs> feedback to the people who have written into us. All right. So um, let's see. All right. You ready, Sean? I'm ready. Do you want to pull out the first? I will. Okay. I think my district manager may be having an affair with one of the other sales reps. That's one to start with. Wow. I don't see them very often, but when I do, they are usually together. Everybody saw them in the hotel bar together till very late at the national meeting last year. When he's giving presentations at our meetings... He usually calls on her or compliments her, even though her sales record is good, but not the best in the district. I think she's getting opportunities that might go to others if we were all being treated fairly. What should I do about this? I got to tell you, Sean, we have a number of cases that have uh, come in with a similar theme. This one is, of course, has an affair, but um, there's a a case later on about, you know, being uh, a a family member or a longtime friend. And this is really, this is, this is... Well, there's this is multifactorial. This is there's a lot there's this has there's a lot of angles to this particular case because it involves uh, a romance at work, which is right. something we were discussing a little we're bit talking. last yep. week. Yep. Um, but it also involves you know favorite favoritism, right, or perception of favoritism. So this is you know right right off the bat, one of the things that I would say about this issue is that this is the kind of situation where the perception is itself a big part of the problem. There, you know, candidly, I find it sometimes frustrating when I think people are reacting to perceptions rather than reality. I sort of have this. Uh, I'm going to put this in maybe an unduly self-complimentary way, but I have this <laughs> orientation toward truth that annoys me when people seem to re- when I think people are reacting to perceptions rather than reality and 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 ignoring the fact that maybe the reality is actually contrary to the perception and the perception might need to be corrected rather than accommodated. But I think this is the kind of case in which it is the perception that is the problem. And, and, I, and, and what I mean by that is that it's the kind of conduct here that is being described that is going to naturally give rise to a perception of favoritism. And yeah. that is the key part of the problem. And, and and so much of what is is about perception. Right. I mean, you know, I I will intervene with a lot of people um, for whom the conflict that is being sent to me the the base conflict and the per, the thing that the individual was sort of arguing about the the person was right. You know, maybe right. it was something where there's a clear right right and wrong, and the person right. was right. But the way that they, you know argued or the way that they let people know they were right was the problem. So, you know, perception in in a lot of situations is everything. Right. Even Uh, if you literally have the right answer and the right answer is four, there's no subjectivity to it. Exactly. It's a number. The way you deliver it is could be causing the problem. But so here, um, well, the relationship itself may be a problem. Yeah. Uh, Because this, as it's being described here, um, and thinking back on our discussion last week with Maurice Schweitzer, where we talked about how 
the most problematic relationships at work are ones in which there is this power differential. Mm -hmm. And if this is the district manager and the sales rep, Mm -hmm. I'm going to infer from this that these people report to each other. It's not specifically said, but I think that's what's going on. And that relationship is a problem. Yes. Because we can't really know, at least the company can't really know whether it's consensual or not. Maybe these two individuals believe it to be consensual. But from the company's perspective, it's not an appropriate consensual relationship. And if it's when taking there's place. that much of a power differential, there's always always something to be concerned about. That's always, right. Always, always. Listeners, uh, we, Sean and I, both know that you have faced these things in your yeah. workplaces. Give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six with your thoughts. So yeah, I mean, there's the whole relationship at work part. Whether that's a perception or not, if, 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 if a district manager is looking like he is having an affair with his sales rep, that's, that's still something worth that's exactly right. feedback, and it's something right. that needs to be corrected. So that's and, – and that's what I mean when I say that the perception is itself a large part of the problem because it's corrosive of morale if the other individuals in the district believe that this sales rep gets opportunities that mm-hmm. are being denied to them because mm-hmm. they are not – in a relationship with the manager. So what should I do about this? Is, that's the question from our, from our listener and writer here. Um, you have a number of things that you could do. If this is a well-organized company, there's a human resources function, yep. which should be an outlet to complain about that. Right. There may be an opportunity to complain to um, a person at the next level above the district manager um, so it's the industry is not given here, but actually, in my own experience, this is this is many years ago now. But we did represent at one point a pharmaceutical company, which was divided into districts, and the districts made up different regions. So mm-hmm. the district managers would report to a regional mm-hmm. manager, a regional director. You could talk to a regional director. There may even be a human resources representative for that region that one could go to, and I would recommend that the person in this instance approach the human resources person who's responsible for the region and say that there's a concern about the possibility of this relationship and that uh, opportunities are being given to the sales rep that are being denied to others and that there's a uh, there's disparate treatment going on here with respect to what kind of opportunities they get to advance. So, you know, when I think about why people don't just automatically do that, because that is the correct and rational advice, I think immediately about the fear of retribution and the fear of retaliation. And I think, you know, you and I could probably spend an entire show on retaliation and fear of retaliation. But, you know, I have a perception. I don't know that these two people are having an affair. And now I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to potentially go to the district manager's manager or to human resources and make an allegation. Right. I'm going to be very nervous about how that is going to potentially blow back on me, even though it's the right thing to do. And I want to do it. And I think we should encourage our listeners to do it. I think we should at least spend a minute talking about, you know, why it's okay. Right. Right. I'm glad you brought it up. So, we could answer this question in a number of different ways about why um, uh, why it's okay to come forward with this complaint. Let me actually just uh, approach it by sort of an unconventional way for a moment, which is a very legal frame of reference. Retaliation claims are prohibited by law. Uh, retaliation is prohibited by law. Retaliation claims are recognized yeah, in the law, yeah, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> clarify that. <laughs> Um, a, a retaliation lawsuit, if someone complains about gender discrimination, which is what a complaint about this essentially would become, if you go to human resources with that complaint, you have undertaken what the law recognizes as protected activity. And if you are subject to some kind of negative consequence or adverse action is the phrase used in the law, you can bring a retaliation claim. Retaliation claims are more successful with juries than discrimination claims are, statistically speaking. Really? Yes. And I think many employers and many employment lawyers recognize this. And it's actually intuitive that retaliation claims are going to be more successful with juries. Because even though it's sometimes hard for juries to believe that a company may have discriminated against someone on the basis of sex or race, national origin, etc., it's more intuitive, it's easier to believe 
that a company or an individual reacted negatively to a complaint because a negative reaction to a complaint is kind of normal. It's kind of normal. It's (laughs) kind of plausible. Yeah. So at the same time that there's a fear of retaliation, I think, and this hopefully is a comforting thing for someone who's concerned about retaliation, the law takes that kind of misconduct, retaliation, very seriously. Hmm. Right. And it has a very robust means of addressing that, more robust, arguably, than even it does in dealing with discrimination directly. So um, that's one thing that well, I would point out. To, to yeah, it's good to know kind of in the background. Now, you know, someone's going to say, wait a minute, I don't want to end up a plaintiff in a lawsuit. I just want to have my job and I don't want to have my job disrupted. OK, that's very understandable. Mm-hmm. And that means that we need to talk about the more immediate consequences of coming forward with this rather than what would be likely to happen if it ended up in litigation. And one thing that I would do is, I mean, you always have the option of bringing a complaint like this up anonymously. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but That makes it so much harder. I, it makes it harder. I tend not to favor anonymous complaints. I, I actually think that I would recommend to, I don't advise plaintiffs, but if I were to advise plaintiffs, I would recommend to plaintiffs, Bring forward your complaint and attach your name to it because you can then speak with human resources about it. You can document it. And then you are the person who, if subsequent action is taken against you, the record shows that you took this step, which is protected by the law. And that you uh, are you can then point to that record and say, I'm, I'm the person who took this protected yeah. activity making this complaint. Yeah, this is definitely tricky. You know, a tricky region we're in. I, I wonder if our listeners uh, what what you think about anonymous complaints. Have you ever made one? Have you ever right. Have you ever had the experience and uh, and tell us about it? One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I think one thing that we learned uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt as we've been doing cases on this show, Sean, is something that we already knew, but but um, has been made abundantly clear, which is that people have very personal reactions right. to all of these things. Um, you know, we we uh, discussed a case about uh, some inappropriate touching that was uh, uh, unquestionably consensual between the individuals who were who were doing right. it, but Seemed to be. but but it was uh, witnessed by others and made them uncomfortable. And right. there was a whole sort of spectrum of reaction, which went from, you know, uh, do nothing or say something, but maybe others will think you're, you know, um, a prude to make a joke out of it, to go straight to HR, to don't go to HR, but absolutely call it out. I think that the thing that is so uh, both interesting, but also challenging about interpersonal conflicts is that they are so inherently personal, and that we all bring our own stuff to the picture and, right. and the way, and so the, the you know the answers that we discuss here and and that HR will discuss or that anyone's going to discuss, it's all going to be informed by uh, to an extent our personal perspectives on the intensity of the matter based upon what we bring to the table. Right. You know, right. which makes it tricky. So, how about one other one other question just about this scenario before we go to the next one is. What are your feelings about – this is a situation where it seems to be publicly visible. The problem is is visible to multiple sales reps, right? Yeah. So what do you think about employees coming together to raise this concern? I tend to support that. I support it If too. it's something employees are talking about, if, a, if two or three of them can come together to bring a concern, that might make you feel – more bold there, if you're that right. individual. It actually also, in a legal sense, makes you more protected. Right. There are certain cases where there is, in fact, strength in numbers. Right. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question at any point during our discussion, give us a call, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Our phone lines are open. Also, if you have a case you prefer to email in, you can write to us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and we'll cover your case on the next show. So, Sean, we were talking about a, right. a district manager who may be having an affair with a sales rep, um, and I think, you know, let's just try to wrap that up because I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people contend with that kind of discomfort and what to do with it. And I think the simple answer is, yeah, you take it to HR. I think I think that's a simple answer. I think it's concrete advice. I think you need to do it. The consequences of not doing it, it is more likely than not going right. to continue to corrode And even morale. if an affair isn't happening, if you're seeing that level of favoritism, that you're concerned about it and it's making you uncomfortable, it becomes an HR issue. And I think it's absolutely worthwhile to, That's right. to bring it there. And trust the HR professionals, hopefully, in your company to 
package that reminder to the district manager in the right way, even if it's not an affair, they can go to that manager and say, hey, Joe, or whatever the person's name is, you should be aware of what people think about how you're acting and what you're saying. Exactly. And maybe that's enough to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Especially if it's perception and not yeah. actually right. I think some of these cases are very tough. This is one where I think the strong advice is to come forward with it. You're doing something to benefit the entire group. Right. All right. So we, you know, while we're on this topic, we, we got a, uh, it looks like we got a case that is on a similar subject. Let me bring, can I bring this one yeah, up then? Please. Okay. So this is actually from Ted in San Jose. Uh, it says, hey, Jody and Sean, uh, one of my coworkers is my boss's best friend's son. Mm. Boss's best friend's son. Okay. He basically grew up with the boss, the vacation together, etc. My coworker gets opportunities and is invited to meetings and conferences sometimes when we're left out. He's done nothing. I assume that's a coworker. He's done nothing any of us can see to deserve special treatment, except that he has a special relationship with the boss and it's mm. demoralizing for the rest of us. I'm afraid to say anything because I think my boss is just going to shut me down. Should I quit? Ugh, listeners, what do you think about this? one 844 one Gosh, I hear so many of these situations. Um, and then, you know, a, a corollary is the way that the that the son handles it in the office. There are going to be some people right. who are embarrassed about it and who right. who kind of uh, uh, minimize the special treatment, and then there are going to be others who just sort of walk around, um, oh, like you know, a peacock. yeah, like a peacock, <laughs> saying, I, "You know, I am an untouchable member of this company." Yeah, because, I got a lot. I got yeah, a lot of connections here. I, exactly, Do you know who I am? Exactly. So, they, oh, even, even if they're not saying it, they might act like it. So I'm going to say to this one that, you know, step number one, and I'm not saying that uh, step number X is not going to end in HR, but step number one is give the boss feedback. Right. You know, I mean, it could be that if this if this kid, if this son really grew up with the boss, the boss may have some blurred boundaries around this person. And it may be, it's kind of like when you are in a business and it's not a family business, but your actual son or right. daughter comes and works. It's kind of hard to have suddenly a boundary perspective on, oh, my son is now my worker and, and should be treated exactly the same way. So it may be that this individual is treating this kid the way that they always have and does not necessarily appreciate that it's different in the office, I've, I've actually seen this a few times with uh, uh, couples who have uh, who work together, like, um, you know, famous couples work, who have their own, let's say, lab. And sometimes they get into trouble because they can't right. really tell the difference between the lab and their living room. Right. And they talk the way they would in their living room right. and they throw people around the way they would in their living room. Right. And, and it really causes trouble. So step number one is tell the boss. Right. I agree, because this may be a perfectly innocent mistake. Not only can sometimes people not tell the difference between their workplace and their living room, sometimes people who are running a workplace and and if it's not an enormous workplace or if they don't have full-time administrative responsibilities but they're in line management, they may not really appreciate the difference between an entry-level job and an internship. Yep. And that's actually a little bit what this sounds like. The the boss's best friend's son is given opportunities and invited to meetings and conferences in the way that maybe you would invite an unpaid intern into right. an experience at work where they get to see the job, to see the business. They're not actually doing much. Maybe they're not even getting paid. It's okay to have an unpaid internship if that person is really the primary beneficiary of the relationship rather than performing work that is for the benefit of the company. Right. But perhaps it's the case that the boss has just kind of confused these things and brought this um, – we don't really have their ages, but I'm assuming the, the best friend's son is a younger person – brought this younger person into the workplace and is giving that person experiences that is more in the nature of an internship rather than paid employment. And perhaps just bringing it to the attention of the boss is going to raise awareness perhaps and that, that could enough. get you a correction. Right. As we know, you know, 75 to 80% of the time awareness works. But right. let's say the boss says, you know. So how do you have that conversation? Actually, before we even talk about alternative strategies, what are the different ways that you can bring up that conversation? Because I think one way you could do it, and I don't think this is the right way to do it, would be to say, I think we're being treated unfairly. Yeah. I, I think I that, I mean, that, that may, that's that actually way. what you feel like. But I don't right. think that's the language that you should use because you put the person on I the defensive. I would probably approach the boss and say, you know, boss, I, I don't 
know that you fully appreciate this, um, but right. we're all aware that you have a personal relationship with so-and-so, and you may not recognize it, but uh, if you kind of take a look at, at the opportunities and the ways that you're interacting with this person, um, it's it's pretty different from the way that you're interacting That's with right. the rest of us. Here are some examples. Here's some examples. Some, I like yeah, that. Of some things that you've that you've offered to um, this person that, you know, so-and-so who's been in the office for X number of years right. hasn't been privy to. And right. I just want to make sure that you realize that, you know, the optics of this situation, because I don't think it's looking so good. I think right. you're showing some... We're starting to think that you're showing some favoritism here and we don't think you're doing it on purpose and just want to let you know. Right. I think you can deliver that message by focusing on the optics and that makes it less aggressive sounding. And I think if you cite examples, that can soften it a bit by saying, I'd really like to get this kind of opportunity that this person has gotten. I'd like to go to such and such a conference or I'd like to meet the the new vendor or exactly. you know, whatever the meeting exactly. is that you feel exclusive. Listeners, what do you think? one eight four four Wharton, that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So we've taken a very benevolent uh, posture on that's this right. case so far. Right. Let's say we, you know, uh, approach the boss and the boss says I don't know. What are you care. talking you about? Know, Nothing's yeah, going on. I, I disagree with you. Or yeah, well, so that's how I'm doing it. You know, right. this is yeah, blood is thicker than water, even though he's like family. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Whatever it is. Right. Then what? Then what do you do? Sometimes you find yourself straightjacketed in these situations, you know? I think so. Yeah. I, I would. Well, so maybe the other thing that I should say here in in looking at this uh, message from Ted is he ends with the question, should I quit? I never recommend quitting as the first recourse. Not as the first. Not right. as the first recourse. Right. But eventually, if you've exhausted all other options, right. you know. Right I, now, it's I, a pretty good job market out there. I this feel like the I, I feel like I know. I've told you the story about the the uh, the law firm where the president and the senior uh, partner were college roommates. And uh, the, I don't think I remember this. Actually. Oh my goodness! The senior partner uh, was in place for decades and right. um, really would chew junior associates up and spit right. them out. And you know, people would draw straws to work with this person. Right. And individuals. Anonymously, not anonymously, coalitions, everybody would appeal to the president of the firm and say this this person is deeply disruptive. Right. You know, we can't work under these conditions. Right. And the president would say, hey, he's, you know, he's my best friend. Brings in a lot you of know, business. I, oh, he's I, my best friend. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I, I'm I, sorry. You know, this is I can't I can't. It's too difficult for me. I can't make any movements on this. So that I mean, I don't mean to interrupt your story, but. Uh, we've been focusing on the perspective of our letter writers for a moment, but let's shift perspective and, and focus on management best practice for just a minute. Yeah. That's just about the worst possible response <laughs> you can give, I think which is right. that this person has special status because of a special relationship right. with me. You are not only demoralizing your listener by saying you're not going to do anything in response. You're also confirming their suspicion Absolutely. that Absolutely. the person is being permitted to get away with things that others would not right. be allowed. And so, so many people over the years just left that firm. Right. And then one day, unexpectedly, the president became suddenly ill and passed away. Oh, gosh. And yeah. what was remarkable about this situation is that this was a decades-long situation, and the senior partner was pushed out of the firm in a matter of weeks. Wow. Because there was so much pent up and so much built up rage and hostility and just unfairness right. that that the culture finally flipped on him and right. um, he was you know, forced into well, retirement. Well, it's, it's an unfortunate episode, but it tells you how much one individual can be an obstacle to yes. change, yes. which would matter to so many. So back to our scenario here from Ted. If the response from the boss is, yes, so what? Well, then you go to HR. Then you go to HR. I, I mean, we don't know whether this is a big enough company even right. to have an HR office, but you have to go You, you have to go to, to the side or above mm-hmm. if this is um, a company where the boss has a boss. And uh, and you need to see if you can get some some recourse there because this is a similar situation in a way to what we were talking about in the first case yep. about the affair where the the perception is the problem 
where the different opportunity, the, the perception that people are being given different opportunities is um, undermining the morale of the group. Yeah. And then, you know, depending on how that goes, that's when you do your risk benefit ratio and you make a decision about uh, whether or not you can stay. Right. Right. Um, I think um, we can go on to another case unless you have... Uh... No, that's... Yeah. Yeah? Okay, so what's next? All right. Um, I am starting to have trouble with my confidence at work. My one-to-one meetings with my boss have always been kind of unpleasant. I've never felt like she likes me. Mm-hmm. But lately, at some point in our conversation, <laughs> oh gosh, she just starts to glare at me. It's like her eyes are lasers piercing through me. So I stop and I ask what's wrong. Like, did I say something? And she just says, no, keep going. I honestly feel like she wants to jump across the table and choke me, but she won't own up to it. Any advice? Oof. Well, this is, let me say. That's unpleasant. Yeah, it is unpleasant. But let me say as we jump into this, this is the kind of scenario that probably would have benefited from a call because we could ask some follow-up questions. Yes. So it's perfectly appropriate to write into us with your your scenarios, and we'll do our best. But sometimes – in live radio, we can ask you some follow-up questions that mm-hmm. might help us to explore it. So how long have these two been working together would be my very first question. Yeah. Has, it, has, has something well, happened in the yeah, past? Even if, even if they haven't been working together for a long time. I mean, clearly um, it, the, the relationship has gone from a cool dislike right. to what feels right. like a hatred. Is there, um, was there a moment at which, that, at which we don't know, our, yeah, well, our no, writer isn't here to answer this right, question, but was there a moment at which that seemed to happen? Well, and could one even reliably remember right. when that might have been? I mean, I think the important thing is that, you know, we we have to trust our instincts. If right. we are in a situation where we really are feeling like there's an elephant in the room and someone is really, really uh, uh, unhappy with us, this sounds right. like to the point of <laughs> like hatred, um, then, you know, Calling it out is is what there is to do. So you say you've stopped and asked what's wrong. Did I say something? And she just kept keep saying no. Keep going. That that sounds sadistic. I mean, it sounds really horrible to like attempt to be direct. Yeah. And then to get that kind of feedback, I think that I would probably. But it's sort, but it's sort of a. It, it's like an aborted attempt to be direct. It's not direct enough. Well, but it could be, and it should be for someone who's willing to have an open conversation. So I. Oh, I, I know. I I agree. Someone should be more direct in that scenario rather than simply saying, did I do something wrong or did I say something? I, I would um, um, I would uh, uh, suggest that this person go back to the boss in a separate meeting, you know, not for not the good. usual one to one, but to request a specific meeting and to say, look, you know, I I, I am aware that our relationship um, has never felt particularly close or cordial to me, but lately it's feeling right. significantly more hostile. I've tried to ask you about it. I, I'm not getting feedback, but I know it's happening because I'm, I feel it without doubt or question. So can we please have an honest conversation about what is going on here? And ideally, the right. boss is not going to be able to to get around that. We, we have a caller. Uh, we have Alan from California. Alan? Yes. Hi, how are you? You have a comment or a question? Yeah, I have sort of a question from a, a boss's perspective. I mean, you know, as a boss, we're really not trained to deal with personality issues. We're really there for production, you know, produce <laughs> the amount of widgets we can. This is so time. true. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess the plea that I'd like to make is from an employee's perspective, if they could approach the boss with with some suggestions rather than just dumping on the boss's lap, this person is annoying me, I can't <laughs> do it. Yes. Whether it's move my desk, move me to a different thing, maybe let's review my job description, whatever it is to help the to help the boss out in this situation. You are absolutely right. You know, when I tell people how to approach a conflict, I, I, I uh, think about it in, in five steps. The, the first one is, you know, check yourself. Is this thing really happening, right? The second one, which I consider the most important one, is name the beast. So just what you're saying here, Alan, someone will come to you and say, so-and-so is annoying me, do something about it. Well, how on earth are you supposed to take action? I mean, that, that is an extremely difficult what does that mean? You know, what are you, what are you saying about that? 
when you approach somebody with a complaint about someone else, be able to say in concrete terms what behaviors are that are causing trouble. Because once you have a definition of what is wrong, what is causing difficulty, it's going to be much easier for you and that person to be able to come up with some alternatives to to help them out of the situation. Uh, the third is, of course, try to empathize with whatever may be going on. The fourth is to be direct, concise. Early intervention is key. And yeah, that was actually the, the fourth and the fifth. Okay. So, um, Alan, thank you for that. No, That's it's, absolutely it's, true. It's such a good insight. There are so many instances in the workforce where we can find examples of individuals who are promoted into a leadership position by virtue of their accomplishments in a subordinate position. I don't mean subordinate in a negative way. I just mean in a position where they were reporting to the person that they, whose job they've now assumed. Mm -hmm. But the skill set for the accomplishments that they've demonstrated in the past is very different from the skill set they need to bring to the leadership position. Right. And they may be talented and qualified for that, or they may have great potential, but um, it's it's sometimes the case. I think it's often the case, and you know I see this on campus, frankly, where individuals assume a position based on past accomplishments, but they've got an entirely yes. new set of duties that involve relating to people rather than grant funding or research, and all of a sudden they've got to use a different set of skills, and they don't have that. They they aren't given that with right. the job title. They and, have and to so go. And so for that reason, because none of you know, it's not like everybody who goes into management needs to have a, a psychology degree. But but by right. the same point, if we can just take the time to define what it is right. that is causing us trouble, you know, even without tremendous psychological uh, expertise, you you can probably also be helpful in figuring out how to how to manage these situations. This is Help Wanted on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jody Foster, along with my co-host, Sean Burke. Today, we're talking through difficult cases at work. If you have a question for us, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Before we move on to the next case, I was just going to say one more thing about Alan's comment, because I think it's so right. It's that this actually, recognizing this fact, I think reinforces the benefits of if you are an employee coming forward with the direct feedback, being a good listener, inviting, asking for help, all the different points that we've talked about that have come out from the sessions and the interviews with our writers, it, the, no, the recognition that managers aren't necessarily inherently well-equipped with this is, I think, reinforcing the fact that you should approach them in this way because you're, you're doing them a favor by bringing this up to yeah, their attention. Alan also made the point that it would be great if they came with both the complaint with and the suggestion. solution, which yes. of course is like, you know, uh, um, uh, worker 101 to, to, to know to when you're complaining about something. Yeah. But unfortunately, as you and I both know, Sean, a lot of people who have these interpersonal complaints come with um, so-and-so is doing so-and-so to me and uh, the solution is that I want blood. Right. <laughs> the solution is right. that I want you to fire them. Yeah. I want, I want you know, any any number of things. So I think it is hard. Don't push the solution too hard. Yeah, it is. Especially it if is, it's really for it personal benefit. It is hard benefit. for for people to uh, to uh, kind of uh, it is. elucidate what it is that they need. But in giving some, of these some thought to a constructive solution is going to be helpful if you're really approaching that conversation in a in a dispassionate, earnest way. Okay. All right. We have only a few minutes left, so I'm going to do one that I think is probably a little bit quicker. Um, okay. My coworker comes to my office about a million times a day to talk to me about her boyfriend woes. Oh, boy. I can't stand it. She ne <laughs> I can't stand it either. She never <laughs> asks me about she never asks about me, and I can't get my work done. I don't know how she can get any work done with how much time she talks about this. It's a small office, and I don't want to cause a rift, but this is driving me crazy and affecting my work. Help! Boy. God, that's happened to all of us, hasn't it? <laughs> well, there's, there's even a, a number of years ago, there was a follow-up album by the uh, pop artist Carly Rae Jepsen, which was really <laughs> underappreciated. I'm going to expose myself as a bit of a pop music fan here, but... Um, and one of the songs on that album was Boy Problems, and it was all about this particular scenario. It's a pretty good tune. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, or think about it, almost any distraction where someone yeah, comes in and disrupts your... Yeah, it doesn't have to be boyfriend, your... Rose, it could be any, any yeah. number of things that are... But, you know, uh, we, we come to work, and, and we spend so much time at work, and we talk to people about what's on our mind, and right. sometimes we talk about it so much that the people around us... 
can't get anything done. They right? can't get anything done, and, and, and distractions are so disruptive to workflow. So the other thing that this uh, this question calls to mind is this tension that exists between the suggestion, I think, made by a number of people that one should bring one's whole self to work. <laughs> but really, I, I mean... But but then also, on the other hand, that we really should recognize that there exist two different concepts of person and role, mm-hmm. and that when you are in a role, particularly in a professional role, you should not be your whole self with all of your personal problems and personal foibles and idiosyncrasies. True. And I, I think I kind of tend a little bit more toward encouraging the latter rather than the whole self concept. That, I agree. This is an example. Agree. But you know it's going to happen because it happens. It happens to all of us. And um, uh, and. Uh, it's a small office. Right. You don't want to say, "Can you get the Fushtukan out of my office?" I, you know, <laughs> would you stop? I, I've heard about this boyfriend already. Come on, yeah. you can't do it that way. Yeah. So what what I would suggest is actually um, uh, just interrupting and yeah. saying, "You know what, so and so. You know what, Sally. I'm extremely. You know, I'm yes. sorry. This is going on." And I really am interested to hear about it. I right. want to hear about it. It's just that I'm in, I'm, I'm in the middle of some work. I have a, a project that I've got to get done. How about if you and I meet at 3 o'clock for coffee and we can talk about some of this? Set a and time. So, That's a good one. Set a time. Set yeah. a boundary. Just put a little fence around it. And this right. is what I mean when I talk to people about setting limits. You know, setting limit doesn't have to be, you know, do, do, don't do X, Y, and Z or else. A limit can be something as simple as I'm... I'm interested to hear from you, but I can't talk about it now. Let's set a time. And maybe if this person does this so routinely that it, it, it is routinely getting in the way of your work, maybe you set a regular time. You know, maybe every Tuesday at three o'clock you meet for coffee <laughs> yeah. and you know that you're okay. going to suck it up and you're going to yeah. like listen to the, the boyfriend problems every Tuesday. But if it is in the service of keeping peace in the office and in terms right. of of uh, keeping, you know, everybody happy and getting her heard and 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 uh, maintaining relationships, then then so be it. Yeah. I think that's that's no problem at all. I- yeah, I'm not a huge fan of setting regular times for things because I think if you have a lot of other work going yeah, on, but... you can have a hard time accomplishing it. But I do like the idea here of setting a time for this conversation because I think one of the things it permits you to do, to circle back to a point that we made very, very early in the show, is it's quality over quantity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, check it out on demand on the SiriusXM app. And be sure to follow our channel on Twitter Twitter. At SXM Business. You can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 